Well, good morning again and welcome. Uh, if you've come in during the middle of our service, I'm Daniel, and I'm really, really glad you're with us uh, this morning as we finish our summer series in the New Testament letter of Galatians. Uh, last week, if you were here, I preached uh, on the reality of our divided selves, this conflict that exists within us between the spirit and the flesh. Uh, I, I referenced Romans chapter 7 that we can all relate to the Apostle Paul when he says, the things I want to do, I do not do, and the very things that I don't want to do, I do. And our hope as Christians is that through faith in Christ, two things are true of us. First is that we are in Christ, our status is changed. And the second is that Christ is in us. We have a new power at work in us to change us. And let me note this morning that as we delve deeply into these truths, Christ in us and Christ uh, us in Christ, there could be a tendency for us to think that the gospel of Jesus is all about changing the self. And that is one large part of the gospel, spiritual change in individual lives. But as we've already talked about this morning, the gospel is about more than just me. It's about more than just you. Uh, I'm going to speak a little more to Charlottesville at the end of my sermon. But there is the potential for us to overfocus on the self uh, to the neglect of societal and cultural transformation. And so in the next two weeks, starting next week and the week following, we're going to do a two-part series in which we're titling it The Church Gathered and Scattered to remind us and call us that at Christ Central we are part of a larger family as we gather here on Sunday morning and we are part of a larger mission unto the world. Now, I do think the sermon I'm preaching this morning has strong implications of how our society and how our culture can change, because I believe as individual lives are changed by the gospel of Jesus, and then we live into our society with renewed purpose and passionate love, then society and culture can be transformed. So this morning, we're going to address for the second time this passage of Galatians 5, 16 to 25. We looked at it last week. We're going to look at it again this week. And we're asking the question again, how do we grow as Christians? How do we walk the path of growth? I have to say before I read the passage that I'm indebted to a friend and pastor uh, who wrote a book, Rankin Wilburn, who's helped shape much of this sermon. And so I'm going to read Galatians 5, 16 to 25. It is our uh, custom for you to stand this morning, as I read God's Word, and then I'm going to pray for us. This is God's Word to us this morning. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then we're going to focus here on verse 24 and verse 25. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let me pray. 
God, I ask that you would speak to us now through your word that is living and active. Would it lay hold of our hearts? Would it change our minds? Would you not just change our minds, but would you allow this gospel of grace to travel that long distance from the head to the heart so that we walk out of this place different, willing to, to walk in these truths, willing to walk the path of a follower of the Lord Jesus? Would you remove me, the preacher, so that Christ would be encountered this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, how do we, how do we change? How do we grow as Christians? That's what we've been looking at last week and this week. In my own Christian uh, walk, I've had two dominant voices that I've been shaped by and had to wrestle with in the, in the answer to this question, how do I grow as a Christian? The first voice that I've heard a lot is what could be titled the voice of the way of extravagant grace. Right? Just believe the gospel and your life will be changed. And I remember when I began to understand the grace of God more deeply, and it rocked my world. I was a sophomore in college, and I began to read guys like John Piper, and uh, in particularly read a book by Brennan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Uh, and in it, Brennan Manning writes this, God loves you unconditionally, not as you should be, but because nobody is as they should be. God loves you unconditionally. And I remember being overwhelmed with God's love and God's grace and hearing it for the first time that I didn't have to perform and I didn't have to work for God's love, that he loved me just as I was. And it changed, it changed my life. And then there's this other voice that I've heard a lot, and this is the voice of, of radical discipleship. This is the voice of just obey. Your life will change if you just obey. And at Auburn, I also read a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian, pastor in the 1930s. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in it, he writes this, Cheap grace, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace means preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. Those who try to use grace as a dispensation from following Christ are simply deceiving themselves. So which voice should we listen to? Just believe? It's all grace or, or just obey, walk in discipleship? Which voice? It's a trick question because the answer is not one or the other. It's both and. You see, the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is come and rest in my love and in my grace. And it's also come and die and give your life away as you follow me. We don't need some of one and then some of the other. We need all grace and all the time hearing the call to follow. 100% of both voices. And the key to hearing these voices and living into the truth are these two truths we've been looking at at Galatians all summer long, that by faith alone, through grace alone, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Understanding that truth, Christ in me, me in Christ, allows me, allows you to bask and soak in God's abounding grace, and it allows us to live into our new identity, where we are being changed day by day by the power of Christ the Holy Spirit that is working in and through you. So I've heard the path of the Christian life, growth of the Christian, described 
by many, by many pastors. I don't know where it came from first, but I, I love the imagery, and I'm going to use it this morning. And, and the image is that of sailing, and I think it's spot on. I've only been sailing a few times. I actually get like seasick really quickly, so uh, I'm not the master of this metaphor by practice. Uh, I just think it, it really drives home how we grow as Christians. Think about what makes a sailboat move. Is it the skill of the sailor? That definitely makes a difference, right? The skill of the sailor makes a difference. But no matter the skill set, no matter the knowledge comprehension that the sailor might have, there is something that he or she has no control over. What is it? The wind, right? If there is no wind, the boat will not move. Well, at the same time, the wind can be blowing fiercely, and your boat might not be moving or it might not be moving in the right direction. You could be stuck, sail flapping in the wind. You could be being tossed to and fro by the waves. To move in the right direction, the wind must be blowing and certain skills must be put into practice. It's a great metaphor for life with God, growing as a Christian. Because no matter how determined we might be, we cannot change our hearts at the deepest levels. No amount of knowledge, no amount of self-determination will make our heart change. We're always dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the wind, God's Spirit to blow on us. Without the Spirit, there is no movement of change within us. At the same time, as Christians, we're not mere passive observers. We cannot control the wind, but we can catch the wind. To catch the wind, we have to draw our sails with certain God-given skills that we can learn and we can put into practice. You know, here at Christ Central, we often say, and it's a lot of times during the offertory, that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make, to make God love you less. This is all grace, that He loves you unconditionally because of Christ in you, and that's true. There's nothing more true than that. But I do think it can lead us to think that then there's nothing left for us to do. All of life is by God's grace, but as one author put so perfectly, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So how do we walk the path of Christian growth? Two steps. Two steps on this walk that I want to give you this morning. And they're two big words, two theological words, and a lot of times I don't use theological words, uh, but I think, I hope this morning is what they would stick because they're, they're new words and, and they're big. So the first step, mortification. Second step in this walk of Christian growth, vivification. Mortification and vivification. Let's look at the first step of mortification. Dr. Phil Rockin says that mortification is one of the most neglected doctrines of the Christian faith, but also one of the most important. Mortification is to mortify the flesh. It's to put to death the works of the flesh. Put sin to death. Theologian John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's mortification, killing sin. And it's what Paul writes in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now, if you've been here or you read Galatians, it might sound like very similar to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. But these two verses are very different. 
In chapter 2, Paul is talking about what has been done to us. Right? We are passive recipients of Christ's work on our behalf. By faith alone, we receive everything Christ has done for us and to us. But chapter 5 is talking about what we can do. We, Christians, crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. Think with me about crucifixion, and let's apply it to what we're called to do to our flesh, to our sin nature. Crucifixion is first painful, isn't it? I mean, crucifixion, nobody here has experienced it, but you've observed it, possibly. Crucifixion is one of the most painful, torturous forms of death ever invented. Putting our sin to death, mortifying our flesh is painful. Not in the sense of abusing our physical bodies, but it's painful to our souls. Because the reality is that many of us have become accustomed to our sin nature. We've become accustomed to some particular sins, and the thought of putting them to death terrifies us. Because deep down, we might secretly hope they can live, because we, we like them. See, killing the sin of hate and racism, killing the sin of lust, or greed, or judgment of others, or coveting, or addiction is painful. It is painful, and we will be tempted to make negotiations with our flesh. You know that negotiation, you've, you've had it inside your head, that conversation where it, it really is a conversation with the flesh. Maybe I'll do it just this time. I, I promise next time to fight harder. You know, I'm not as bad as other people. At least I do these things. And, and so to give in here is not that bad. And, and we enter into peace negotiations with our flesh. But we looked last week, what we are in is a war. And putting our sin to death is necessary, but it's painful. Crucifixion is second, it's gradual. If you know anything about crucifixion, you know that the victims of crucifixion can linger for days as they hang there on the cross. The means of death is, is not physical pain. The means of death is the inability and loss of strength to lift up from the cross and take a breath. The victim of crucifixion, uh, of crucifixion suffocates, can no longer breathe, and so sooner or later, sometimes days will pass and the person finally suffocates. As Christians, we will not succeed in, in completely destroying our flesh here on earth. We will always have a battle on our hands. But as Christians, we should be determined to keep our sins nailed to the cross until they are no more. There are no shortcuts to mortification. It's a long, slow, painful death. And as Eugene Peterson says, it's a long obedience in the same direction. The last thing I'll point out about crucifixion is, is that it's final. It's final. It may be slow, it may be gradual, but when a person was crucified or was crucified, there, were, there was always verification that the person was actually dead. A soldier would ensure that the person was dead before they were ever taken down from the cross. There is a finality for our sin. There is a finality for our sin nature for those who are in Christ. Verse 24 says, have crucified. It is a past tense, meaning in one sense it's already fully accomplished. And the reason being is that our sin was put to death once and for all finally when Christ won the battle on the cross. 
Our God does not fight a losing battle. Our sin and our sin nature will be dealt a death blow. And the Spirit remains in us so that day by day we can be putting our sin to death, to crucify the flesh, to kill sin. This is the first step on the path of Christian growth, to mortify the flesh. The second step on this path of Christian growth is vivification. Another big word, vivify. It means the coming to life of our new self. The new spirit nature that we have by faith in Christ coming alive. Verse 25 says, if we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. Go back to the sailing imagery. Life as a Christian is not like a motorboat where we have the power to control the change. Neither is it like a raft where we're just kind of carried along. It's like a sailboat, which means we do have the means by which we can draw our sail, catch the wind of the Holy Spirit so that change happens inside of us. I'm going to talk about drawing ourselves here in a minute, but before I get into some practical drawing of our sails as Christians. Let me point out another main metaphor that Paul uses in verse 25. Look back at 20, verse 25. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Another translation maybe in your Bibles is, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us walk. Let's keep in step. That's military formation language. Soldiers lining up in formation and marching together, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, left, right. Paul is saying life change, growth as a Christian, ordinarily comes through a repetitive day in and day out walking, left, right, left, right. This is what I'm saying. Paul doesn't say grasp the secret of the Spirit as though we have some mysterious thing to go after he says keep in step with the spirit daily take your left right left right and sometimes in the christian life it sure feels like an uphill walk just kind of like plodding and drudging uphill left right left right there is nothing more common than walking and that's the imagery paul uses for the christian life Life with God is not rare and extraordinary. All of us in here might prefer to fly, but God has called us to walk. All of us in here might prefer the silver bullet that leads us to change, but God has called us to a life of mortification and vivification. Left, right, left, right. So what I want to do is give you some God-given, time-tested skills, some Things you can do and learn and grow in and practice that will help you catch the wind of the Spirit. These are also have been referred to as means of grace. Means of catching and experiencing the grace of God so that we're changed by that grace. Some of these are, are uh, maybe uh, what you're used to or you would predict them to be. And so don't zone me out as I challenge you on these left, right, left, right. God's word is one of the first means of grace that he's given to us. Psalm chapter 1 tells us that blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who meditates on the word of God day and night. God's word is powerful and effective. Isaiah tells us that it will accomplish its purposes in our lives. 
God's Word is not a toolbox that we can kind of use whenever we want. It's not mainly an instruction manual, and it's not a history lesson. God's Word is the very revelation of God. It is what God has ordained to communicate the wonder of His presence to His people. You get that? When we open up the Bible, we are being offered the presence of God. Psalm 1 tells us to meditate on God's Word. Meditate, savor it, chew on it. So I want to encourage each and every one of you to be opening up God's Word daily. You can read it. You can read through books or sections. Have a a yearly reading plan. But meditate on it too. Don't just rush through it. Don't treat it like fast food, like five minutes and you're you're done with it. This is a delicious meal by which we can commune with the living God. Savor it. For man does not live on bread alone, but the very words of our God. Let me give you one resource that I've used and I love and uh, our staff team uses. It's a, a devotional that Eugene Peterson put out called Seeking God's Face. I love it. Use that. Go buy it. Use it as a way to meditate on God's Word. Another thing that I'd suggest is try memorizing verses and passages of Scripture. Write them on note cards, however you memorize best. But the psalmist tells us that thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is a means of grace to change us. The second means of grace that I'll mention is prayer. Prayer. It's the means of bringing ourselves into God's presence. Coming honest to God, sharing our feelings, honest about our request, honest about our petitions. Maybe you've prayed, maybe you're here and you prayed for something and prayer doesn't seem to work. Your marriage is still hard. You haven't experienced physical healing in the way that you want. You haven't gotten the job that you want. You're still experiencing injustices in a way that you want to change. And so you're, you're like, prayer just doesn't work. Why do I pray? Prayer is about communing with someone, not always getting something. We have to trust that God knows what we need. And so we come to him in prayer, and at times, God will give us what we're asking for, and at other times, he'll give us much better than we're asking for, but all the time, he'll give us what we most need, which is himself. And so we pray. Let me, again, I'll point you to seeking God's face as a good resource to pray. Use the Lord's Prayer. It's the way Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Use that as a kind of a guide for you to pray. If you've ever seen the Book of Common Prayer, it's a great resource to use to teach you how to pray. I, I know that prayer can sometimes feel foreign or difficult for many people. And so kind of talking about prayer seems like this like hard thing to comprehend. That's why I'm giving you some resources to, to check out. But I love what Mother Teresa said. She said, you learn to pray by praying. You learn to pray by praying. So we raise our sails of prayer to ask God to change us in the midst of prayer. Here's the third means of grace I'll point out. Worship together on a Sunday morning. Worshiping together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25 says, Let us not give up meeting together. In Genesis 1 and 2, the God who created all things rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he was giving us, his people, a rhythm to emulate. Resting and worshiping on Sunday, the Sabbath day. What the Lord did, it's a command. It's the fourth command in the Ten Commandments. It's not a suggestion. 
See, God knows that we need one day to rest and to remember who he is. We need it. We need this. And Timothy and I often talk about this because, not, be, not because we want large numbers of people showing up on a Sunday morning so we feel better, but we deeply believe each and every person here needs corporate worship every week. God told us we need it. You need to hear each other sing because on a Sunday morning, you might feel like you can't lift your voice to utter a word, but you hear someone to the left or the right of you singing, you, singing words that all you can do is well up within your heart. We need this. God has ordained corporate worship, the preached word, the sacraments, as a means to change us. So let me encourage you. Make this day a priority. Make Sunday a priority. And I realize that people travel on the weekends. And I realize that people, things pop up that would prevent you from coming. What if you didn't travel on Sundays? What if you made it a priority to be in worship on Sundays? Here, but if you're away, you attend somewhere else for worship. What if you thought about your Saturday night in such a way that you used it to prepare yourself and be ready to meet with God on Sunday morning because you know he's ordained this corporate worship to change us? That's the third means of grace. The last means of grace that I'll mention is community. There are others, but this is the fourth one. Community. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Every single person in here needs gospel friendships. Friends that we can confess our sins to. Friends who will call us out on our sins. Friends who can see the blind spots that we live with. And in these friendships and relationships, we can confess our sin. And they can remind us of God's grace. We can hear their confession and we remind of God's grace. And in that, we are healed and changed. So let me encourage you. Press into gospel friendships if you don't have any. Don't just have good time friends. Go deep and challenge one another in Christ. And if you have those, you have some good spiritual friendships. Uh, and if you don't, even more so, let me suggest that you commit to some type of group life here in our church. City group, life group, men's and women's Bible studies. You need gospel friendships to help change you. Life as a Christian is not always exhilarating. Sometimes it's hard, change isn't quick, and fellowship with God can sometimes feel very dry. You might be in a season right now where it's hard or it's dry, or you will come to that at some point. And when you do or if you're in it, please don't place the blame on your circumstances. Don't place the blame on your spouse. Don't, blame, don't put, place the blame on church leaders. Continue to raise your sails. Continue to keep in step. Left, right, left, right. Labor to be brought near to the grace of Christ. I was reminded of this past week when I was meeting someone in our church about a story or a phrase that the author Anne Lamott tells. Anne Lamott, uh, she's a writer, and she writes about uh, how hard writing can be at times. The pain of writer's block, some of you have experienced. How do you write when you don't feel like it? And she says this, Keep your tail in the chair. That's how you do it. You keep your behind in the chair. And ultimately, the words start to come. At some point, you'll begin to write. As Christians, when it's hard and when it's dry, we have to keep our tails in the chair. 
We have to use the means of grace that he's given us, raising ourselves and asking God to change us, to let us experience and encounter his grace. Now, I spent most of my sermon this morning preaching on the how of spiritual change, but I have to close and remind us what we've been looking at in all of Galatians all summer long, that we have to be driven by the why of our change first and foremost, and that the why of our change will lead us to follow in the how of the walk. If you live the Christian life walking around saying, put sin to death, put sin to death, just obey, without knowing the why you're putting sin to death, you'll become exactly what the Apostle Paul is rebuking in this entire letter. The Judaizers, who are guilty of living under the law, guilty of self-salvation through their own efforts. The why of putting to death sin so that you and I can live into our new life in Christ. The why we do this, the why we follow, is because we want Jesus. We want Jesus. We want to live in union and communion with Jesus. So we put to death our sinful passions and desires, and we raise ourselves so that we can experience the love and the grace of Christ. Last week, my wife Rachel sent me a photo of our oldest son wearing one of my t-shirts and a pair of my shorts. It was all, he was in the doorway of our, of our master bedroom and he was smiling with my big old t-shirt and my big old shorts on him. One day my son will grow up and he'll be able to wear my clothes fully. The gospel of Jesus Christ declares that we have been clothed in the Lord Jesus. We are in him. That is true by faith in him. Our job, if you will, is to grow up until the clothes fit. By God's grace, we grow and grow. We are completely covered now. But day by day, we walk left, right, left, right by the power of the Spirit, putting to death the flesh's desires and passions, and we live in obedience until one day we're fully clothed, walking around in the Lord Jesus, who is already fully ours by faith. You know, I want to end real quick before we come to the table, as I told you I would, coming back to Charlottesville, because I feel like I want to apply this spiritual lives being changed to Charlottesville and address what I talked about at the beginning. How, how are we going to have racial justice and racial equity in the church in particular? The same pattern, death and life, death and life. We must die to the hatred of brothers and sisters. We must kill the hatred. We must be active, not merely passive learners, but actively engaging in killing the hatred and racism. We must make no negotiations with any form that would come from our own hearts, that would flow from our society, that would come around the dinner table when you're back home with your family, or your friends here in Durham, we speak up if we hear it. We do something about it. And it's going to be painful. It's not going to be easy. Even in our church community, there will be hard conversations, conversations, painful confrontations. And it will take time. But thank the Lord that one day Christ will return and there will be no more hatred. That our vision, which is a promise is that every tongue, tribe, and nation will be united in love around Jesus. 
And as we trust Christ's love towards us, and we experience more of his love in these means of grace, we must live into our love for other people, especially those who are experiencing injustice. And we love beyond our comfort. We love when it costs us something. For is that not the gospel? Is that not what Jesus did for us? He could have stayed ruling from heaven, but his love sent him to come and live and die for us. We all must be changed. And by faith in Christ, we will be changed more and more like him from the inside out for the glory of God and for the good of all people. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are changing, that you have begun a good work, will complete it. So I pray that you help us to understand grace, to to rest in you, and you help us to hear the call to follow, to take up our cross, to put to death the deeds of the flesh and live into the new nature that we have by the Spirit's power. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.